Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. On today's episode, the History Guy talks about two mad monarchs. The first is Charles VI of France, whose mental illness changed the fortunes of France and who was nearly set aflame in the Ball of the Burning Men. The second is Bavarian Mad King Ludwig II, whose obsession with fairy tale and opera led him to build one of the most iconic castles in history. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. It was January 28th. 1393, and the Queen of France, Isabeau Bavaria, was holding a ball to celebrate the marriage of one of her ladies-in-waiting. Her husband, Charles VI of France, attended with five of his friends, high-ranking knights of the realm, in costume, dressed as wild men. They ran around, they howled like wolves, they dared guests to try to guess who they were through their flax-covered masks. But what started as a rowdy and ostentatious display for nobility quickly turned to tragedy was an integral event in the chaotic period of the middle stage of the Hundred Years' War. The dance called the Ball of the Burning Men and the state of the French court in which it occurred is history that deserves to be remembered. When 11-year-old Charles VI became King of France in 1380 during the Hundred Years' War, France was ascendant. At the beginning of his father's reign in 1364, England had controlled the entire southwestern section of France, but Charles V had fought so successfully that when his son took the throne, England controlled only three small areas on the coast. Because of his youth, Charles's four uncles ruled as regents, especially Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy. Though 14 was the age of accountability and therefore adulthood at the time, Charles would not throw off the regency until he was 21. The dukes squandered much of the country's money for their own gain while fighting amongst each other and sometimes even against the interests of the crown. They reinstated taxes Charles's father had repealed and brutally put down revolts. The problems of the realm were widely attributed to maladministration by the king's regents. In 1385, Philip arranged Charles's marriage to Isabeau of Bavaria. Charles ended the duke's regency in 1388, but Philip would retain considerable power in the years to come. Charles brought in the reliable help of a trusted set of advisors called the Marmosets, which was a group of unified advisors, many of whom had helped to advise his father. The term itself, the Marmosets, meant the monkeys, and it was meant as a term of derision and insult by Charles's uncles and their allies, but they ruled well, and Charles was popular with the populace. He became known as Le Bien-Ami, Charles, the Beloved. In 1392, the leader of the Marmosets, Oliver de Clisson, was waylaid in a narrow street in Paris by a personal enemy who had been banished from Paris the previous year. Clisson's servants fled at the attack, but Oliver's chainmail protected him long enough to draw his own sword. Clisson was knocked from his horse and knocked unconscious, and the assassin, believing the deed done, fled. Clisson had an old enemy in the Duke of Brittany. Believing him to have been behind the assassination attempt, Charles was furious and impatient to lead a military expedition against him. Though he was sick for several weeks, he left with the army on horseback in July of 1392. During the journey, a man of ferocious aspect, bareheaded and barelegged, dragged the king's horse and shouted, Ride no further, noble king! Turn back! You are betrayed! The man was chased off, but Charles was shaken. Later that day, a page dozed and dropped his lance, which hit another's helmet with a loud clang. The king was seized by a fit of madness. He attacked his own retainers, shouting, Forward against the traitors! They wish to deliver me to the enemy! He even charged his brother, the Duke of Orleans, and only after a struggle was the king seized. Shortly after, he fell into a coma. He had killed several of his own men. The campaign ended, and the dukes quickly blamed and overthrew the marmosets. Charles was brought to the renowned 92-year-old doctor, Guillaume de Harzigny, who nursed him to health on a slow journey back to Paris. Contemporaries thought the king had been struck by sorcery or divine anger, but modern historians like Robert Neck speculate that he may have been experiencing early symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia. Dr. Hezeny refused to stay in Paris, but advised that the king not be worried with affairs of state, 
and that pleasure and forgetfulness would be better for him than anything else. The king's illness would remain a burden for the rest of his life. He would run down the halls of his palace, howling like a wolf, so often that they walled off entrances to the palace to keep him from getting loose. He had bouts where he could not know that he was the king and could not recognize his wife and children, and one chronicler said that he was far out of the way. No medicine could help him. He sometimes believed he was made of glass and would try to keep himself from breaking. Though still known as the Beloved, people also began to call him the Mad. Queen Isabeau took seriously her job to entertain the king and perhaps enjoyed the trappings of wealth herself. The court threw elaborate amusements to keep the king busy, and the queen and her sister were decked in jewelry and wore cone-shaped hats called henens, so large that doorways were said to be widened to accommodate them. Control of the kingdom rested in an unofficial sort of regency, controlled mostly by his uncles, the Duke of Burgundy and the Duke of Berry, and his wife, who was influenced heavily by the Duke of Burgundy. The French people were uncomfortable with the displays of excess, but were happy to blame it on the foreign queen and not on the sick king. In July of 1393, one of the queen's ladies-in-waiting was getting married. Again. Sources disagree on whether this was her third or her fourth marriage, but it was traditional when someone remarried to throw a charvari, roughly translated as pandemonium, an act of mockery and tomfoolery and rough music where a parade would be held and much noise as possible be made, especially with pots and pans and cymbals. The goal of the charvari was to show displeasure at events that broke social norms. It was believed that the sacrament of marriage lasted beyond death, and so remarrying was a sin. Contemporary chronicles disagree on whether the party was thrown solely in celebration, or more traditionally as a charabari, or some combination of the two. At the suggestion of his nobles, Charles and five of his knights dressed as wild men for the evening. Wild men were believed to be soulless, hairy men who lived far from civilization, and were often associated with demons and paganism. The church discouraged any belief in the creatures, but it was common in medieval Europe for peasants to hold wild men dances. Often the men would be burned in effigy as a metaphor for the rejection of the wild and the godless for the penitent and civilized Christian world. In the case of Charles, it seems mostly to be a matter of entertainment that would also celebrate and simultaneously humiliate the lady-in-waiting. The exact social nuances of the event are difficult to extract with certainty today, but medieval spectacle was often complicated by symbolism and context-dependent social displays. Charles and his nobles were sewn into their linen costumes, which were covered in pitch and tow or resin and flax to make them appear covered in hair. They also wore masks to hide their identities, and most of the audience did not know that Charles was one of the dancers. They may have been chained together, though some accounts say they were not, and as they ran about the room howling and causing general mischief, they encouraged onlookers to guess who they were. The court knew that the costumes were flammable and had ordered that no torches or candles be brought into the chamber to prevent any accidents. But unfortunately, Charles's brother, the Duke of Orleans, was late to the party and with some of his friends entered the party drunk and carrying torches. The Chronicles disagree somewhat as to what actually happened, with one contemporary report claiming that Orleans threw the torch, while others suggest it was just an accidental spark. The reports agree that the nearest wild man quickly burst into flames, and that in moments, the others were aflame as well. The Queen, knowing that her husband was among them, fainted immediately, while chaos engulfed the party. Retainers and knights tried to put out the flames of the burning dancers, and many of them sustained burns trying to stamp the fires out. One of the dancers dove into a vat of wine, where he stayed until the flames had all gone out. The king was apparently apart from the other dancers, though it isn't known why. Medieval chronicle Froissart wrote that the king, who proceeded ahead of the dancers, departed from his companions and went to the ladies to show himself to them. As the fire spread, he was saved by the quick thinking of his 15-year-old aunt, the Duchess of Berry, who threw her voluminous skirts train about the king to protect him. One of the nobles died at the scene, while three of the others would linger for a few days before succumbing to their wounds. The event was covered by several chroniclers and histories, as the death of four nobles in so ignoble a manner was certainly of note. The aftermath of the disaster quickly turned against the nobles, but not against the king. Poissar's chronicle wrote that Charles and Isabeau could do nothing to remedy it. We must accept that it was no fault of theirs, but of the Duke of Orleans. The king's brother's reputation suffered greatly from the event combined with another where he tried to imbue his weapons with demonic magic. The theologian Jean Petit would claim years later that the duke had been trying to kill the king with sorcery at the ball, but had failed. 
The people of Paris were aghast. They blamed Charles's advisors, his uncles, for putting the king in danger and threatened to kill and dispose the guilty nobles. Afraid that riots might ensue, the court did penance at the Notre Dame Cathedral after making an apologetic march through the city in which the king rode on horseback while his advisors walked. The Duke of Orleans donated money for a chapel to be built as penance. The chaos brought on by Charles VI's incapacitation would continue to threaten the stability of the realm. Charles would remain king until 1422, though by the turn of the century he was little more than a figurehead and often beset by madness. Still knee-deep in the on-again, off-again, hundred years' war, the fight over who should retain guardianship over Charles VI's children became the focal point of French infighting. Philip, the Duke of Burgundy, and Louis, Duke of Orleans, fought over the children and over control of the queen. While Louis was more closely related, he had a bad reputation as a debauchee and was rumored to be having an affair with the queen, while popular opinion considered him to have burdened the country with unfair taxes and hardship. Philip died in 1404, but his son carried on the feud, and in 1407 had the Duke of Orleans assassinated. He did not deny the killing, but instead defended it, and sent a theologian to Paris, who argued that men were justified in killing tyrants, and that John should be rewarded, not punished. He had the support of the Paris University and the city's populace, and he was pardoned. Louis' son Charles, the new Duke of Orleans, took up arms, and France was engaged in a civil war for the next 28 years which allowed the English to again conquer large parts of the country. The disaster of the Ball of the Burning Man represents a common theme in medieval Europe, where religion, excesses of courts, and intrigues of nobles could lead to horrible ends. A powerful king could arise and conquer huge swaths of land, only to have it all lost with a son who was too sickly or too distracted to rule. France literally transitioned from Charles V, the wise, to his son Charles VI, the mad. Every event could have religious or political importance, could be used to justify all manner of actions, and force of arms and popular opinion was more important than being right. While the Charles was too sick to rule, the, the dukes around him tore the kingdom apart with their petty and personal intrigues, and into the chaos descended the English once again, only to be finally driven out by the actions of Joan of Arc, who was instrumental in having Charles' son, Charles VII, crowned king. The, the, the fate of Europe, the fate of millions of people was tied up in the successes and the failures and the accidents of intriguing nobles and mad kings. Now is the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. So this story, you know, when I, I, I wrote this episode, and one of the reasons I'd come across it is because it is a story that just sounds so absurd that it would read as good fiction. It's another one of those tales where you're like, oh, this is almost weirder than, uh, uh, than, than anything someone could write. You wouldn't believe it if not for it literally being written in historical chronicles. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just, it's hard to imagine that something could go so wrong in such a, a ridiculous way. Uh, but I mean, it's, and it's, but it's tied to, you know, Charles VI is just, you know, flat out crazy. I mean, this guy, you know, yeah. you know, middle of a of, of a ride, got mad and attacked his own retainers, thinking, you know, I mean, he he, he had clear psychosis. Uh, but the funny one is, that he wasn't he wasn't the crazy one in the you know in this terrible <laughs> and this event. particular yeah. event. Yeah, yeah that yeah, was, was yeah. Um, I mean, it's I mean, it's interesting as a story of decadence as a story, but I mean, to, just to think that this was this is how they had fun, what they thought was funny, and you know, it could go so wrong, and that they were like, keep everybody out here with fire because we know we'll catch fire. And and you know what happened? Well, we caught fire. You know what? A, we caught fire. Yeah. A, it's it's nice to know that hold my beer doesn't require that you be a commoner that you can do that in nobility, and then it goes back <laughs> goes back along before beer you know was in cans. So yeah, I guess you know in a time before uh, before any pretty much any of the entertainments that that we have today, when you can't just sit around on your couch and do all kinds of oh, stuff. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Gosh, they. They found ways to entertain and, themselves, entertain, and they, and you can see why it kind of might be fun, you know, them playing around. Yeah. But I mean, this would be like a story of like, you know, the president was in the Oval Office playing with fireworks and burned down the White House. I mean, <laughs> this, this is literally <laughs> that crazy, you know, like what? Yeah. And the king hides under his wife's skirt. <laughs> his his his, uh, his aunt. Oh, his fifteen year old aunt. That's whose whose skirts he jumps <laughs> under. Which uh, and the queen just sees one of them go up and immediately faints. <laughs> I would too. I'm not sure I would. <laughs> uh, it really was i mean they uh, in terms of what they were doing they knew it was dangerous and 
Yeah, because they wouldn't they just, wouldn't allow any flames in there. Yeah, but yeah, and this is what you, you don't let your drunk brother don't invite him to the party. That's just the, <laughs> sometimes you got to be judicious. I know he's family, but but you, you're dressed up in kindling and you know lighter fluid. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean they knew how these. I, I mean they look like some sort of ghillie suit or something like that. And I wonder if I yeah. how flammable a ghillie suit is. I mean it looks pretty flammable, doesn't it? I, yeah, someone 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 who's been a question. sniper chime in and tell us if the, if you have to be careful of smoking in a ghillie suit because these these things. Yeah, they clearly knew it was a danger and they and they tried to protect yeah. it from that. Uh, and it's kind of, you know you have to think that the brother would understand that. I mean this isn't like a yeah. brand new thing, but also this well you know just for fun this dress our guys up in flammable i don't know wild man suits <laughs> you know bigfoot suits and have them run okay. around and then you know what could possibly go wrong well you know uh it's i mean it's such an interesting story <laughs> but it is but when you tie it to that particular monarch too who had you know verified yeah. incidents of of you know total insanity i mean he just had you know spots where he had lost touch with reality thought he was made of glass or couldn't remember you know his own family and and he clearly was having having some some serious mental episodes Uh, i mean he he killed people when in that you know when he uh, was attacked his own retainers he he truly was uh, charged his own his own brother in that in that one and it's and it's and it altered history. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that was a big chunk. You know, this was during the Hundred Years' War, and that was part of why France, you know, lost all that ground is because there was no powerful monarch, and all of the rest of them were busy battling each other. Yeah, because, I mean, you had the king. Were, yeah. who, so I mean, you got this. You got the huge. You got all, all the politics around the uncles and, yeah. the, and the and the dukes and everything that were fighting for power. You got a, a king that's clearly you know incompetent and crazy, uh, and then you have this you know just, maybe just as kind of a symbol. I mean, if you talk about a dumpster fire, right? I mean. If, Things are going. I mean, could you have a better symbol of what's going on there than to have you know what happened at the at the yeah at the ball? Part of the idea of this episode about you know mad monarchs is to say that I mean people became king for you know that's how we established the process uh, and it was a horrible thing when people fought over who's going to be the king and who's going to have power uh, and so you might have someone who's clearly you know not a good monarch but it, that's better than you know trying to fight over who'd be the other one who'd be a better monarch yeah. And so, I mean, it's well, madness in in uh, in monarchy is a very interesting question. What do you do? Yeah. And you know, we still, I mean, I don't know. Every president you have now, someone argues they should take him out on the Twenty Fifth Amendment or whatever. I mean, I don't think we've had anybody yeah. that's actually, you know, having psychotic episodes or anything like that. That's a, but I, I mean, it's it's still a question when you have a leader. Uh, 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 you know, what happens if the leader's you know mentally unstable? And and uh, these, yeah. you know, in these cases, you know, that <laughs> the worst happened, right? <laughs> Yeah, these were these were, and you know, this was a case of someone who they all knew was unsuited. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that you know the the peasants, the the common folk, uh, resisted blaming the king. Yeah, and I don't know if that's, I, I mean, is if that's a matter of propaganda or if that's a matter of uh, just this yeah, this I belief mean, in the divine right of kings. Divine right of that, kings, yeah, and I mean, and you know, obviously the you know the brother that was a you know. Uh, he yeah. was a wastrel and a flanderer and a, and a drunkard, and you know he's the one who brought the torch into the into the you know the the fire pit. Uh, but uh, yeah, it is <laughs> it is interesting that the people stuck because at some point you kind of be saying like, "Hey, you're ruling the place. <laughs> be good at it." Yeah, you know? keep, <laughs> maybe you should keep this under control. But they always just seem to come up with, "Oh, he's just got bad advisors," or and you know that's what ends up having with the marmosets, which is an absolutely wonderful name for yeah. a group. <laughs> <laughs> it's that is both that is both a, a wonderful insult for someone you don't like but actually you know the the best part is that they were probably the most uh effective ruling group of his of you know charles the sixth entire reign yeah. is that when he had those guys in place yeah and they end up uh, kind of getting overthrown yeah, they, uh, you know, yeah just because they're they have too much power and there's other people who want the power so it is i mean you know when you think about it because you, you got this crazy story of the baldar Ardent, the ardent right i don't know i'm not french but uh, I'm, I, I, I won't try to do it as pepe le pew but you got the baldardens and, and that is such a crazy story and you know all these no noble men you know burned to death in their wild man suits uh, and you think wow that's interesting and then you go find out the the context the political context the yeah. historical context is what's going on at the time and it's, it's funny how much it represents that political and historical context yeah. but it really it really does tell you you know that this was a state where france you know literally lost half the country to england yeah. simply because they could not get control of their own government of their own state and yeah. you know that's that's they that's had- an interesting lesson to learn uh, right, and that's and it was this was a part of that, and uh, in in some ways a symptom of it, and yeah. uh, also a cause of it. Um, it's it's 
it is truly, I, I mean, it's truly crazy to think that there are entire portions of history. I mean, people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died over over things like this. Is mm -hmm. that whether he was going to be, uh, and ultimately, you know, he didn't die in this, but gosh, it would have been simple for him to be the guy who happened to be too close to the torch and go. Well, I mean, I mean, and what, but I mean, what if you get another war of succession because you know, oh, because yeah. the king caught fire because they were doing a wild man ball. I mean, I mean, that's, uh, and, and, you know, there's some Kings have died in some, you know, bizarre ways in history too, oh, I guess, but there was, there was the, uh, oh, I'm not going to remember which, which one it was that drowned, drowned in the, in the lake on his way to the, Oh, that's Crusades. Frederick Barbarossa. Yeah. 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 That was, <laughs> Which yeah, the great king like, Frederick yeah, Redbeard. He fell. He just fell in the water in his armor, and that was that. Right, he him out time. Drowned, and you know, there's so many places. But I, I mean, the possibly the best example of you know, let's leave him in place because it'll be worse if he isn't. Is is Charles the Second of Spain? <laughs> uh, sho shovel face. Shovel face. As, yeah. as, as he didn't match. Known. He couldn't chew his own food. He couldn't talk. His tongue was so big. And, and they're like, yeah, well, it's better than fighting over who's the king. And it's true because when they fought over who was king, it, I mean, it was uh, destroyed Europe fighting over who was going to yeah. replace the guy. So that's why they kept this guy who couldn't even talk and stand on his own legs. They're like, well, you know. I mean, he was absolutely incompetent, obviously incompetent. Well, and his reign was, I mean, caused all kinds of problems. But I can it imagine, was still who's responsible than... for chewing the king's food, though? Can you imagine being the dude whose job it was to chew up his food, shovel, shovel it into shovel face's mouth there? Oh my goodness, he was. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, that yeah, that, that is an interesting story, and that one actually ties to it. Ends, it ends up tying to the War of Jenkins' ear, yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's points where you you'd rather have an incompetent leader than fight over who's going to be the next leader, and and uh, yeah. you know there's uh, there's other points where it's simply someone who's more ambitious who's trying to destroy you yeah. because they they want to take the power. Uh, you know, again, here, you know, what it comes down to is, I mean, everything is going wrong in France because they have a weak leader. And, it's, you know, a weak yeah. leader, you think if it was a strong leader, even one who enjoyed fun, if it was a strong leader, would he have been in the room full of, you know, kindling? Uh, or, you know, was this, you know, typical of his sort of poor decision making or, or his uh, frivolous nature when, you know, they needed him to be king? Yeah. But it is, it's just, it's a crazy story. Was, I mean, I, you hate to laugh about it. I mean, these guys, it had to be oh, a horrible yeah. way I mean, to die, right? Being strapped into your flame suit. Well, but, and we we even uh, the some of the descriptions of of their burning are, are actually very graphic. Yeah, and we disturbing. Didn't, we yeah, didn't someone we couldn't include. Yeah, because YouTube would have, yeah. wouldn't have, wouldn't let us monetize that sort of horrible thing. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, you uh, look back and say like, look at these crazy nobles. They went in there and they you know they were you know they were kindling and they got all burned up. But I mean, at the time, I, I can imagine how yeah. horrifying that was. I don't know. Has it ever been portrayed in film? Uh, oh, I don't know if I've if I've I've never seen it. But I mean, I've seen it. Um, but that's it's a uh, it was gosh it was it would have been very dramatic to see and I I try to think of you know I mean this is it was at night so it was dark uh -huh. too you know the <laughs> and I, I don't know how they were lighting the uh, yeah if you had to, uh, if you couldn't have light in the room I don't know how they were you know how how they were lighting or how careful they were lighting it and but they they I mean you know the the folks who who burned to death were and then the the few the ones who didn't of course were looking for any protection because well once one guy's on fire he's just running yeah he's just I, running I, I here's some fire for you and here's some fire for you i really doubt that he was able to you know dodge all that well yeah once, a, yeah, once you're, you're on fire and you're that, trying to get a suit you're literally sewn into and you're trying to get that sucker yeah, off i i mean it i'm and i'm always, sure that always I mean, that, that is another and, secret with your with your halloween costume always know where the zipper is yeah i gotta be ready to take that off just in case there's a reason <laughs> that the halloween costumes are flame retardant Yes, yes. This, that lesson well, so, was apparently learned early in France. You know, six what seven hundred years ago, we we had figured out that yeah, these these things can be a little dangerous, especially when you uh, make them out of uh, flammable. And for them, I mean, they were literally like put together with pitch and stuff. I mean, it yeah, was yeah, stuff that was yeah. I mean, I imagine all the clothes because I imagine all the clothes were flammable, but I don't think we oh, yeah. the same flame. I have to do a history of flame retardant technology, but uh, uh, we did do a history on uh, on asbestos, asbestos, but that was different. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, these were. I mean, but and the thing is that they utterly recognize, absolutely recognize that, and then you know the yeah. the brother is so entitled that he just ignores the rules and comes strolling yeah. in there with a big. But I mean, what was what was he carrying too though? I mean, was that, was it like a torch out of like Indiana Jones or something like that? I, mean, I know like he's. He, he like seems really... to have like this big torch. It's like throwing sparks everywhere or something. I don't I know. I was wondering what the exact. Well, you know, at least one of the. Uh... 
uh, accounts suggested he threw it. Although uh, based on based on what you see, you know, politically around the time, it seems like that was likely something just to say, look how evil he yeah, was yeah, to um, attack him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which it seems it seems more likely that he was actually just being a drunkard yeah. uh, and not paying well, attention. But I mean, what to... a story. The drunken brother of the king stumbles into the king's costume party in flammable yeah. outfits and they have, you know and all these noblemen die so uh with you know with the undercurrent saying ha 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 and that's what a horrible way for someone to die who was just doing something fun that night so yeah yeah it's yeah it's they were that was it's grisly be, yeah. it's, but it's but it's it's bizarrely humorous and how weird that it was and and how weird that it was the king and nobility that was doing that and uh and you know the, yeah amazing they didn't burn the whole place down right yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's many, many more people could have died if that fire had spread in a particular yeah. way. And it was clearly there were crowds. Um, someone in the comments said it, it would hate to be the people who were who were getting married after that, uh, <laughs> since that was supposed to be this party. Uh, oh, that's right. It's it not 100 like percent clear if it was party, a party right? for or a party making fun of because she was, you know, this was a second or third marriage or a fourth marriage. And so. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean that in itself is a weird, is a weird enough. Oh, it's your third yeah. marriage. How about we, you know, joke at you for being the? I don't know. Uh, it's it's <laughs> for, it's, it's so this being it against is, it, the... this is definitely a great example of truth is stranger than fiction. You could not yeah. have made this up and made it believable. It's the culture of the Middle Ages. I mean, we we all have a kind of an idea of what the Middle Ages are like, but I think in a lot of film and uh, fantasy that we see that we think of as, as very medieval. Um, we do not get a, a real good idea for just how weird uh, it could be. I mean, these were, these were in, in many ways, foreign cultures. And there was a, a lot of stuff that we, that didn't hang on till today that we would go back into the middle ages and be like, what on earth is oh, yeah. this? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is a, I mean, the wild men thing itself, which had all this, you know, had all of this symbolism and this concept of, this idea that there were real wild men and that they were uh, demons or, you know, that represented chaos yeah. and, and but, stuff like you know, that. That, it, that might have been what they were doing with their, uh, their insane, with people that were yeah. on the fringe of society. I mean, because we, yeah. we put them out on the streets, right? And, and uh, yeah. yeah, and so, you know, that might have been, uh, or, you know, it's, uh, that's, that's an interesting story in itself is because there's so much, I mean, that's, that's all over Europe. You get this idea of, of wild men and what are they and were they, you know, were they Celts that went hidden in the woods and, you know, they're actually were people yeah. in the woods that could actually grab your kids or something or if it was just all this representation of how close they were to nature or, you know this is the spirit and the unpredictability of nature there's all of that together so you can yeah. see why they kind of make this fun little romp out of that and then you've got this ability where you can just kind of go and make fun of people just because you're wearing a mask uh, and that's yeah. a way to kind of peel away a, you know a, a piece of that nobility and and uh, and be able to do that in a way that was you know less threatening but i mean was really you know it's like a jester sort of thing yeah uh, and uh, and but then all that goes wrong too i mean there's just there's so so much depth to this story there's so much yeah. angle to this story uh and, well, you know which is you know, really a story of you know their costumes caught fire yeah you start with that and then you find out. I mean, that's that's one of the things I really like about, you know, studying history and, one, and kind of the way we are able to approach history is that you're able to look at, you know, an event that is entertaining when you retell it. And uh, mm -hmm. even if it, you know, has really some very dark, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. some dark pieces of it. Uh, but ultimately, you know, we're able to take this out and like this is how this is a representation of so many different things that were going on and uh, how this was really a product of its time. And I, yeah. you know, that's something you don't, you don't necessarily get when you're focusing just on the dates and the, you know, the important, the names yes, of yeah. important events and stuff. I, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to understand uh, Charles VI without uh, seeing how this represented his, yeah. I mean, really the nature of his rule. So if you are a regular listener to the podcast or a watcher of the YouTube channel, uh, you like history. And if you want to kind of support what we do and how we continue to make these kinds of stories and talk about history, there are numerous ways you can do that. One of the ways is that you can look at one of our pay, uh, pay channels, which is you can look through Patreon or you can go to we've got a page on locals. You can also become a member on YouTube. Yeah, we do. It's a community on Locals. Community. And a member on YouTube. Yeah, those are all ways where um, you can, you know, you can give a few dollars a month. Uh, there are some perks to that. We do make some uh, unique content. Uh, but uh, also, if we've got one of the YouTube uh, uh, episodes that's being sponsored, we give you the without the ads. Also, it's just really, it's simply a way where you can say that we like what the History Guy's doing and want to throw a dollar or two your direction. So uh, uh, we've been on Patreon for years, and we really like Patreon. But, I mean, there's some people who prefer Locals. That's fine. Some people who prefer YouTube. 
uh, and all of them give a different split to us. So some will go to the channel and some will go to them. But uh, if you if you join, uh, you certainly will be a favorite member. And there's some perks that come along too, depending on how much you sign up for. If you want to get one of our coins or something like that, uh, this is this is not easy to do. This is how we make a living. And it takes a good deal of time, and we love the history that we do, and uh, we love the people that are fans of the history, uh, and it's a way for us to, you know, to get a little closer that way, where you get a little closer to us, and we get a little closer to you, and it, for, you know, a couple of dollars, maybe $3 a month, you can make a huge difference uh, in covering the cost that it takes. Like I always say, you got to pay for the cat food. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and if you want to do the history, you got to pay for the cat food. And, and, you know, this keeps me, I don't know if everybody knows, I worked for Blue Cross for many years. And this keeps me from going back to selling insurance. So, yeah, uh, uh, which was not a bad job. I don't want to say anything like that. Just to say that we'd love to be able to do this full time. And we very much appreciate the people that make it possible to do that. Absolutely. You know, we're a very small group and uh, it takes a lot of work to run things. And we really appreciate uh, being able to do mm -hmm. this. And I, I think it's something that we really enjoy doing. And I really believe in, you know, teaching history in the way that we do it. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to do. Just look up the history guy. If you go to Patreon and just type in the history guy, if you go to locals, just type in the history guy. If you are watching on YouTube, all you have to go is to the main page and you can become a member. Those are all ways where you can choose how much you want to give, uh, you know, $2, $3, you know, $1,500. <laughs> $5 billion a month. Uh, and then uh, and uh, that really helps us pay what, what we're doing. Next up, the history guy talks about Mad King Ludwig II of Bavaria. Let's be honest. Most Americans' vision of a medieval castle is based on the ones that we see in Disney parks. But to be fair, those were based on real castles, particularly Neuschwanstein, or the New Swan Stone Castle, built on a rugged hill in Bavaria. But Neuschwanstein is anything but medieval. It was commissioned in 1869 by the Bavarian king Ludwig II, who was obsessed with fairy tales. Today he's sometimes called the Swan King, or the Fairy Tale King, but he's mostly known as the Mad King. Ludwig II led a troubled life. He died in mysterious circumstances, and yet he left behind a legacy in music and in stone that has become almost synonymous with Bavaria. It is history that deserves to be remembered. On August 25, 1845, the future king was born to Maximilian, Crown Prince of Bavaria, and Marie of Prussia. His parents intended to name him Otto, but his grandfather, King Ludwig I, insisted the name be changed. Otto was born on the king's own birthday, or probably the day before, with the date changed purely for appearances, which was also the feast day of the patron saint of Bavaria, King Louis IX. So he was renamed Ludwig, the German version of Louis, and his younger brother would become Otto. Ludwig had an odd childhood and was described by some as an odd boy. When he was three, his grandfather abdicated the throne in the face of forces of the German revolutions of 1848 and a personal scandal over an indiscreet relationship with an Irish dancer called Lola Montez. Maximilian became king of Bavaria and restored stability to the regime but paid little personal attention to his son. When Maximilian's advisors suggested the king take Ludwig with him on walks, the king answered, but what am I to say to him? Of his mother, one cabinet member said that Marie scarcely even knew how to treat her children as children ought to be treated. As an adult, Ludwig referred to his own mother as my predecessor's consort and his youth as a series of humiliating torments. Ludwig spent most of his childhood at his father's castle, whose walls were decorated with myths and fairy tales like the Arthurian Parsifal and Lohengrin, the Knight of the Swan, which sparked his obsession with all things fairy tale. From a young age, Ludwig did not enjoy playing soldier or hunting, activities his parents thought appropriate for a crown prince, but was an imaginative boy who preferred stories and solitude. When asked if he was bored, the young prince replied, I imagine various things and keep myself quite amused. His father scolded him while his brother was more spoiled and it affected his psyche. Otto is a good boy and I will be good also, he wrote to his mother. His behavior was sometimes abhorrent. He stole a purse and argued that all that belongs to my subjects belongs to me, and nearly strangled his brother with a rope for daring to resist his will. He learned young about the divine right of kings and the superiority of his house. He also showed some early tendencies towards hallucinations, perhaps a byproduct of inbreeding in the royal family. When he was 12, he heard about Richard Wagner's opera Lohengrin, about a mythical German hero, and begged to see it. His parents refused. While famous, Wagner was a controversial figure for his scorn of religion and politics. Ludwig finally saw the play two years later, and it changed his life. He was enthralled by the music and by watching his childhood fantasies come to life. A year later, he saw another of Wagner's operas, Tannhauser. 
The secretary who attended with the prince said that Ludwig was thrown in such convulsions that I was afraid he might have an epileptic seizure. Ludwig's childhood came to a halt when his father died suddenly on March 10, 1864. Heralds rode through Munich in a snowstorm, trumpeting the news. The 18-year-old prince was now King Ludwig II of Bavaria. At Maximilian's funeral, a Bavarian writer wrote glowingly of the dark-haired, handsome prince. He was the most beautiful youth I had ever seen. The king was less enthusiastic, writing, It has been my fate to be called too young to face heavy responsibilities, too heavy for young shoulders, too difficult for a young brain. Ludwig was a very solitary person, but he did have a close friend in his cousin Elizabeth, who was Empress of Austria by marriage. They became close after his coronation. I think those that are taken to be insane are the only really intelligent people, she wrote to Ludwig. After becoming king, he contacted his greatest obsession, Richard Wagner. Wagner struggled his whole life to pay creditors, and when Ludwig wrote him, the artist was on the run. Some friend must arise to help me, Wagner wrote. Only a miracle could help me now, and that right soon, or I am done for. Ludwig's letter must have been a miracle, too. It included a ruby ring in the note, As the stone burns, so do I burn with ardor to behold the creator of the words and music of Lohengrin. When they met, Ludwig was completely enthralled. I have no other disciple who is so utterly my own. It is scarcely believable, Wagner wrote. The king rented a house for the composer and pressed him to do nothing but write. Ludwig peppered him with letters, writing, My love for you and your art grows even greater, and this flame of love shall bring you happiness and salvation. His love for Wagner was not shared by the Bavarian public. They thought the king was lavishing too much attention on his friend. When the prime minister threatened to resign if Wagner didn't leave, Ludwig was forced to exile the composer, hoping he would be able to return someday. In 1866, outside political events intruded. At the time, Germany did not exist as a country, but was made up of dozens of small states. The most powerful was Prussia, which hoped to unite Germany under its leadership. Prussia's competitor for Germany hegemony was Austria and southern German states like Bavaria. Otto von Bismarck, the Prussian minister-president, forced the issue by declaring war in the summer of 66. Ludwig, who wanted the title of king but not the duties, tried to give up his throne rather than take a position, until Wagner, for purely selfish reasons, convinced him to keep his crown. He chose to support Austria. Ludwig did his best to forget about the war, refusing to lead the army or even to receive news from Parliament. The Austrian ambassador wrote, One begins to think that the king is demented. When finally forced to visit the army, he was traumatized by the wounded. The Seven Weeks' War was brief, but a resounding defeat for Austria and Bavaria. Austria was kicked out of the German Union, and Bavaria was forced to acknowledge Prussian supremacy. Among the kingly duties in which Ludwig had no interest was marriage. The state was pushing him to find a wife, and even Wagner tried to convince him of it. I haven't time to get married, he said. He was eventually worn down, however, and began to pay attention to Empress Elizabeth's younger sister, Sophia. She shared an appreciation for Wagner. They were engaged, but Ludwig acted oddly with Sophia, and his obsession with Wagner shone through. In letters, he used the names of characters from Wagner's operas instead of their own. He left an official engagement ball without warning to go to the theater. When together, he made her play and sing music from the operas. He soured on the wedding quickly. He told an advisor that he'd rather drown than marry. He postponed the wedding several times, and when Sophia's father demanded that he set a firm date or cancel the wedding, Ludwig happily took the offered way out. Sophia got rid of. The gloomy picture fades. I long for freedom to awaken this terrible nightmare, he wrote in his journal. Sophia's reputation suffered from rumors after the broken engagement, though she was at the time in love with another man. In fact, from Ludwig's personal writings, it seems that he was much more attracted to men, although he struggled with the urges and his religion. Ludwig's myriad disappointments drove him to find an escape. How necessary it is to create for oneself such poetic places of refuge, where one can forget for a while the dreadful times in which I live. He decorated his room with stars and a fountain, and created a winter garden indoors in Munich, complete with a waterfall and an artificial moon. When his grandfather died, the former king's pension came to him, giving him funds to be more ambitious. He chose a beautiful location with inside of his childhood palace to build himself a castle. He had experienced ruins there as a child and resolved to build Neuschwanstein atop the rugged peaks. He hired a stage designer to lead the construction and decorated the walls with murals of his favorite stories. Ludwig oversaw every detail of the building, spared no expense. The throne room, which never received an actual throne, had two million painstakingly arranged tiles. He built the castle in honor of Wagner and based much of it on his stage productions. War broke out again in 1870, this time between Prussia and France. Ludwig was bound to support Prussia, but again found himself terribly stressed by the possibility of a war. 
Prussia's victory cemented Prussian power and allowed Bismarck to bring the last German states into his German confederation. An emperor was to be named, and Ludwig hoped it could be him. A futile hope, since Bismarck never meant to empower Bavaria. Wilhelm, Ludwig's uncle and the king of Prussia, was the chosen leader. Ludwig was so upset he refused to attend the negotiations. Bavaria did gain privileged status within the German Empire, and Ludwig reluctantly supported unification with Wilhelm as emperor. The Second Reich was born. He dove further into personal projects. He loved the palace at Versailles and the opulence of King Louis XIV, the Sun King. He built Linderhof Palace, the only construction he lived to see completed. He demanded absolute control over construction, reflecting his desire to be an autocrat. His room in the palace was decorated with gold and had a thousand-pound crystal chandelier. Also at Linderhof was his table that sets itself. The king liked to dine alone, and the table could be lowered into the kitchen, filled with food, and then raised so that he didn't have to deal with servants. One of his most ambitious constructs was the Venus Grotto, again inspired by Wagner. It was an enormous man-made cave made to look natural, with a waterfall and a large lake. Included one of Bavaria's first electrical generator-powered lights and a wave machine. The king seemed to be growing more eccentric as he aged. He gained weight, and his love of sweets rotted out most of his teeth, causing constant pain. He cultivated a peculiar walk, meant to imitate Louis XIV, which one observer called a total mockery of nature. He began sleeping during the day and riding his horses at night. He surprised peasants in their homes after midnight and lavished them with gifts. He staged hundreds of plays and operas, mostly by Wagner, for himself alone. He began two more palaces and planned an even greater castle. He paid for a large theater in Bayreuth, called the Festival Theater for Wagner, where the composer first showed his four opera Ring Cycle in 1876. When Wagner died, Ludwig ordered all of his pianos be draped with black. He regularly set his table for three or four, though he dined alone, so he could imagine and converse with people such as Louis XIV and Marie Antoinette. He was difficult to his servants, whom he would berate, forbid from looking at him, and forced to bow to him as they backed out of the room. He usually communicated in notes, as he wished not to speak. Ludwig's projects were financed entirely from his own money, but by 1884 he had spent everything he had and borrowed some 8 million marks. He made plans for even more palaces despite his financial troubles, but his workers halted construction because they weren't being paid. His cabinet officials were furious. He sent servants as far as Persia to ask for loans and tried to get them to rob a bank. As criticism grew, he turned inward even more, finally refusing to go to the capital and only communicating via letter. Johann Lutz, prime minister, decided to take the king down. He met with the king's uncle, Lutopold, who agreed to become regent if Ludwig could be proven insane. Lutz turned to Dr. Bernard von Guden, who listened to reports from servants, many of whom were paid for their wild reports, and declared that the king suffered from paranoia. Guden said the king was incurably insane and had to be removed from power. He never examined the king directly. The cabinet appointed a commission to arrest the king at Neuschwanstein on June 7, 1886. They planned to confine him at Berg Castle on the shores of Lake Starnberg. The king caught wind of the plan before the commission could arrive and barricaded himself inside the castle with help from local peasants and soldiers. Lutopold was declared regent and Ludwig remained paralyzed with indecision, talking of suicide. When the commissioners came again, the king had been abandoned by his servants and was captured without a fight. How can you certify me insane without seeing me, he demanded of Guden, who insisted that the servant's testimony was enough. The king appeared calm the next day and collected. His cousin Elizabeth was across the lake and the water was covered in boats, some of which carried peasants who supported him. That afternoon he insisted on going for a walk during a rainstorm and Guden accompanied him, alone. The doctor had a train to catch at 8 p.m., but when the hour arrived neither of the men had returned. The rain had grown heavier. By 10 p.m., searchers discovered hats and coats soaked and abandoned by the lake. They took a boat out and found both men dead. Guden showed signs of a fight. His face was scratched, a fingernail had been torn off, and he had a gash in his forehead. The king was simply still, face down in the water. So ended the reign of the fairy tale king. The exact circumstances of what happened that night have never become clear. A letter that he wrote to his cousin Elizabeth across the lake that night has been lost. The official government explanation was that Ludwig had attacked Guden and then killed himself. There were armed peasants on the lake in boats, so perhaps it was an attempted escape that failed. Years later, rumors started to arrive that Ludwig had been assassinated. There were rumors that the cloak they found on the shore had bullet holes in it, and that the doctor that had examined Ludwig's body had been forced to lie about bullet wounds, even though it's 
not really clear what anyone had to gain from assassinating Ludwig at that point, and in any case we'll never know. The cloak was burned in a fire, and the king's body has never been exhumed. It's not even clear that Ludwig was actually mad. Doctors today, looking at his behavior, disagree. Some say that his behavior really showed that he was merely an eccentric, although others say there was evidence of frontal lobe injury and that he showed some signs of personality disorder. Just seven weeks after his death, his buildings were made open to tourists, and of course since have earned Bavaria many millions more than they ever cost to build. His legacy in those buildings and in the later works of Wagner, which never would have been composed were it not for Ludwig's patronage, far outlast him, and have come to be seen as synonymous with Bavaria itself. In an irony, the German magazine Focus noted in 2014 that he won the love of his subjects, only posthumously. But what to make of the fairy tale king? Well, perhaps from that we should take his own word. He once wrote, I intend to remain an enigma to myself and others. And so he has. One of the ways I was learned about Ludwig was that there was actually a there was a board game, the Castles of Mad King Ludwig, I think is what it's called. And it's a, it's an entertaining it's an entertaining game. But then, you know, when you actually start looking into what it is Ludwig did, it's a, it's a he's got an interesting life, a somewhat tragic life. Uh, he lived hundreds of years after Charles, of course, uh, but a. I think that there are some, even though that they were very different in terms of their madness, uh, if I think that with Ludwig, you actually might have some question as to whether, you know, was this actual mental illness or was he just a weird... Was he, was he truly crazy yeah. or was this, I mean, yeah. I mean, this is, you've got a kid that grew up in a very strange situation, yeah. right? And uh, so what, was he, was he just eccentric? As eccentric as you would expect from someone who was, he was not allowed companions, he was not allowed to play as a child, his mother didn't even know how to hold him as a child. Uh, and yeah. I mean, that's... Uh, that you know the burden of the crown weighs heavily, and I think it weighed heavily on him. Uh, and also, quite likely, it appears that he was gay, and that was just something that was not you know acceptable yeah. among the monarchy, and so he was never able to live the life he quite wanted to live. Uh, and you know, imagine chafing under their you know any which way, you know, chafing under the system where they're going to tell you you know who you got to marry in yeah. order to make the kingdom. And, yeah. and that was important, of course, you know, making a making an heir, and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's the, the, the it's not as easy to be king yeah. as people might think. Yeah. yeah, and he, I mean, he talked about his childhood as a, a series of humiliating torments and his mother as mm -hmm. my predecessor's uh, consort. I mean, he clearly <laughs> had some problems yeah. with, uh, <laughs> with his parents. And he, I mean, what you really see with him is that he didn't like uh the expectations what they wanted of him uh, he and he escaped he didn't he just he did not have a temperament of a no. king you know he did no. not like to lead troops in battle he didn't like that whole idea of war and you know they you know when they wanted a war leader he wasn't able to do it or he was uh, you know it's interesting because i was just that at Neuschwanstein and and uh, plus Ho go Gao. I'm going to pronounce it all wrong, so forgive me. But anyway, so uh, it, like uh, it was very common for wealthy children to like to have. They would have a, a thing that make it look like you saw stars on your roof. And I, you know, I think I had when I was a kid, little glow yeah. dark stars. I stuck up on yeah. my roof. But he had that installed as an adult, and that really kind of showed how he just kind of he never he had a few things that comforted him in childhood, and he never quite grew out of yeah. that. Uh, but I mean, and you know, if you, we know, we know adults like that these days, but I mean, are they, are they king? Yeah. You know? Usually they're not in a position uh, that, you know, it's going to threaten the, the wealth of the realm or the. It was in, in Bavaria is an interesting place because they were, they were wealthy. They were wealthy because of the salt trade. They were wealthy for a number of reasons. And, and they, they generally didn't have to do a lot of fighting in the wars. And they, and uh, they, as long as the royal family was keeping it good for the merchants, they did pretty well. Uh, and so there wasn't always a lot of, you know, it, it wasn't like you always had a guy on a horse that was going and protecting the yeah. kingdom. But I mean, he also, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's legitimate questions. I mean, he, he, he liked to dress up in medieval armor hundreds of years in the 19th century. Yeah. He's dressing up in medieval yeah. army, armor and he's going around riding around the countryside because he wants to. I mean, um, uh, you know, is that kind of dress up, you know, something that you think is appropriate for someone who's you know, who's the ruling monarch? And he clearly was living. I mean, he was living these fantasies of of, of I mean, of, of clearly of these fairy tales of Lohengrin and uh, uh, which mm -hmm. he continued to try to live i mean he he tell me if you go if you go to schloss hoshwang gao 
uh, uh, first of all, it looks like it's really close, but you got to walk up a bunch of really steep stairs. <laughs> so, so it's, you're like, oh, I'm almost there. And then you're like, holy cow, this is like a ladder. But uh, 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 you know what a castle is? I say, a castle is really just a big box of stairs, and it's an Escher staircase. They're endless <laughs> stairs. They don't, you keep going, and you never get to the top of anything. But uh, 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 I mean, there's just uh, the paintings of the walls. Like in the dining room, you know, the paintings of the walls are, you know, and, and, and all the, you know, all these, you know, fairy tales and, and, and uh, great epic stories of, of Bavaria and stuff like that. So you can you can understand why, and especially in this house where they were, I mean, this kid grew up with no love whatsoever, yeah. that all you're going to do is sit in those rooms and, and, you know, build fantasies around these, you know, your whole, you know, the walls in your bedroom are yeah. painted with, you know, all the heroes of the realm. And he just didn't, you know, what they wanted him to do was uh, go hunting or or be interested in the army. And all he wanted to do was uh, read books and, <laughs> and imagine. It just wasn't. I mean, so it, it just comes off like he was really just temperamentally. Yeah. Not, yeah. not the king, but he also grew up in this idea where you, you know, I mean, he was truly spoiled. Oh, yeah. You know, he didn't, oh, yeah. no one ever said no to him on on any of the stuff that he wanted to do, and and he, and he knew, especially after he got his grandfather's inheritance, yeah. right, that he could just kind of do whatever he wanted to do. So, I mean, I think there's a general perspective that he was just crazy, he had so much candy, his teeth rotted out of his head, and he was like running around laughing mad. And he wasn't. I mean, but uh, but he also wasn't always in the business like way what they would expect from a, from a king. Uh, and they complained about his personal spending, and I understand that because. If you, I mean, you can see Schloss Hochschwangau from Schloss Neuschwanstein. And again, forgive me on any of that, of that. But I mean, you can like see yeah. one from the other. So why do we need? And they're not really castles; they're palaces, yes. right? I mean, these are these are follies. They're not well past the you know the era where, where you know, you're using them as fortifications. So why do we need a second one that you can like? He literally got a telescope so he could see his new castle from his old castle. I mean, it seems like you know uh, that that's, that's that's a little extravagant. And he you know? had even he had even bigger bigger dreams. And what his uh, his did, yeah. his idol is the the Louis the Louis the Fourteenth the 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 sun king the the one who had just such <laughs> ridiculous french palaces that's you know that's who he's trying he wanted to build even more ridiculous uh things after and he, yeah, after he, he had no money well, he never he finished no i mean the, the interesting thing about neuschwanstein is only like 10 percent of the castle is actually yeah. finished so you you go there and you visit and you find that there's very little of the castle and the part you can go through is absolutely yeah. stunning it's spectacular yeah. but the thing is if they are arguing about that i mean shoot they were selling tickets to that sucker from the moment he fell in the, in oh, yeah. the, in the lake oh. right oh, yeah. and if they are still selling lots of tickets today i mean that's that is that is still. I mean, that's 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 got to be like the number one money maker for Bavaria <laughs> yeah. is beer and, and Neuschwanstein, and, and 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 so I mean that's that guy has made more money for Bavaria than any other king of Bavaria for having right. And who, I mean, who yeah, had any was, idea yeah. that that was going to be that that was what it was going to take was for him to just be. I mean, he was he was a weirdo. He clearly was. Uh-huh. He, he you know he when he did have the the his almost wife that he ends up you know not marrying. Uh, it's. He wants her to only uh-huh. play songs from the from the operas, or Bachner, he's yeah, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he wants to refer to her as characters from the play. That was clearly the only way he was going to be able to like manage that. Yeah, as yeah, a yeah. He, he had to he had to literally create a fantasy out yeah. of it because he didn't want to have a normal relationship with her. Maybe that's because he was gay. Uh, maybe not. I mean, maybe it was just he was just someone who was not, yeah. you know, not sexually oriented. I mean, if you never grew up with normal relationships and you grew up with a mother who didn't love you at all, maybe you may, maybe you just never yeah. make you know natural attachments. You're not interested. Uh, in a not normal. Interested. The things you got, you know, in in the same way that you can eat all the candies you want to eat. I mean, as a king, you also have to you know marry the right person and you know watch out for the realm yeah. and he didn't seem to like any of that he certainly didn't like the warfare and any of that sort of thing but he also he really he just didn't like you know managing estates no. or doing you know doing really anything and so you know his uncle was a was a grasping individual who you know had his, his nephew arrested uh, and he lived till he was like 99 he lived down in Hoshuanggao and installed one of the first elevators there so he could get up and down in his wheelchair yeah. uh, but he he was temperamentally you know a ruler you know he was temperamentally someone who could be the ceo of the company uh and uh, and understand you know that 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 he had responsibilities that came along with his with his rights but but i mean you know ludwig thought that you know when they when they formed the the confederation and they chose a king that they were that they might choose him which was i mean it's you know, so was... much of that doesn't make sense because, first of all, I mean, he was clearly he clearly would have been a bad choice. I, I don't think anyone in the yeah. anyone anyone in the uh, you know the whole group would have thought that he was the right choice. I don't know because Wilhelm II was his cousin too, and I, it's hard to imagine doing too much worse. But I mean, well, but his his I mean, Wilhelm's dad, Wilhelm the first, you know, his his cousin was. I mean, obviously the the king of Prussia was going to be the king of the new state. I mean, uh, that's Prussia is the one that you know defeated Austria in order to create I said, the new I state. I wonder why know? he even would have wanted it. 
Uh, everything else you see is that he didn't even seem to want to be king, but he's like, oh, well, maybe they'll make me emperor. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was like, why would you yeah, want to be? You, I, I, have, I have no idea. So so in, in some ways, it's really just a tragedy yeah. because it seems like this is maybe just like a person with an artist's soul yeah. that was born into a military family. Uh, and, uh, and, and then it comes down. I mean, if you're there, they keep just saying the mystery of his death. Yeah. Well, I mean... I don't think it's particularly a mystery in that it seems relatively obvious that he was murdered, right? I, I mean, you can't, I mean, he knew how to swim quite yeah. well, right? And even if you want to, even if you're upset because I don't know, he had a fight with the doctor or something, the story they tried to tell. I mean, you, it's really hard to drown yourself when you know how to yeah, swim. Yeah, you know, I right? was I was thinking that too, because they're like, oh, we found him face down. The only part of it that seems, you know, a, is that the, the doctor died too. But the thing is, this uh -huh. is a story that we're being sold by... Uh, Absolutely, by people who had every reason to kill. I mean, it might be the doctor was defending him from whoever yeah. drowned him, but uh, but it certainly it, it. I mean, suicide seems very dubious, yeah. uh, and they'll say they won't say. It. I mean, it's funny because I mean, all the castles they they don't say he was murdered. Yeah. Uh, they just say that he died under such mysterious circumstances that they seem to be implying throughout that he was murdered because the, because it doesn't make yeah. sense the story that we, they were told. All it really um, is is we don't yeah, we don't I, have know. a specific you know we don't have a specific account of what happens there. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I I mean it sure is, I, immediately after he's he's arrested. I mean he's he's in there for almost no time at all before they before he dies and you really see it. I mean what what makes the most sense is that he could represent a problem because he has a claim to the throne uh absolutely he, and he did i mean the people he had not necessarily lost all the no. will of the people and, and of course that always there's always because then if the uncle uh you know who's who's actually he wasn't the king he was Otto became yeah. king right and the uncle just became yeah. the caretaker but uh but uh if you know if the people start getting you know frustrated with the new ruler then they're it's too easy to go back to the yeah. the old ruler but i mean it seems if you're going to suicide if you're going to use suicide as a verb and say you're going to suicide someone i mean when they check him off a new schwanstein and yeah. say jump yeah, you know, they I certainly mean, had they certainly had opportunities to do that, and it, it was easy enough to. I mean, he had talked about suicide before and stuff. It, it, there was ways to sell it, but the particular way he died is mysterious because it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't quite. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, how does a person who knows how to swim drown in a calm lake? Yeah, yeah, uh, it just seems unlikely. You know that it yeah. was an accident. It seems unlikely that he tripped and fell in there and just you know I don't know face first and drowned, but. Oops, but that's that's what happened to Frederick Barbarossa, right? So it's true. So and then part of it, saying that, you know, it, to some extent, you can say, you know, there wasn't a lot to gain by killing him, um, but there was there was something to lose by leaving him alive. I think by leaving the, him alive, yeah, yeah, it was was the danger, and I, you know, Ludwig clearly. I'll go on record saying I think that the evidence would suggest that it was his uncle who done yeah. him in. Uh, I mean, I have. <laughs> I think that that probably makes maybe the most too sense. soon. No, I, I would. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't have challenged him at the time because I might have ended up in the lake. But, uh, but I, I, you know, I think that certainly there's just so much to imply that I mean, yeah. his uncle had everything yeah. to gain for it. But I mean, it's it's a mystery like the you know the princes in the tower. You know? Yeah. And, yeah, you know, whose whose uncle also had reason to do him in, and they argue. Yeah, seems seems rather likely that that's exactly that how it went down is exactly how you think it went down, and they just you mm -hmm. know left enough. Uh, Plausible deniability. Oh, no, it's, still, it's still an unsolved. It's still an unsolved mystery. Yeah. I can go on. But you know, his his life ends up being a tragedy. But like you said, I, I don't know that anyone has uh, anyone in all, possibly history has done more to you know like kind of influence this the impression and uh, kind of character of Bavaria. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I think they know him more than and oh, I, I don't know. This is not bad because I actually love Bavaria and I love the people there. But I mean, I, the only thing that you really know about Bavaria from a distance is is Ludwig and Neuschwanstein and Nazis, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. That's the... <laughs> if you want to choose between the two, you know, Mad King Ludwig is a much better story, you know, yeah. than uh, and he's, than, the, he's... than the Third Reich, right? So... And it is interesting, you know, that he was he's popularly been called the Mad, but also you know the Fairy Tale King, which I think is a much nicer sounding name. Yeah, it's probably a fair and it's probably a fair description yeah. of, of who he was and yeah. he he clearly had his own i mean he had his own problems and he was selfish and uh self-interested uh but he also i mean he wasn't Come on, can you blame him growing up that way oh yeah right and all he wanted was was to live out his fantasies and he had an incredible amount of money mm -hmm. with which to do so and mm -hmm. <laughs> still managed to spend through it all but... well shoot if i came into a huge amount of money i can't guarantee you i wouldn't use it to build a castle i i mean and his and his castle's beautiful. I mean, it's an absolutely stunning. Oh my gosh! Castle. It is. I mean, it's a world landmark. Yeah. It is, and yeah. and it is, uh, and it you know encompasses the whole style of of yeah. the re and you know he had a love for history. 
Yeah. So I mean, and then he was he was trying to you know romanticized version of it, a, a Wagnerized version of it. But, yeah. I mean, but I mean, an absolutely extraordinary creation. And you know, some of those people that make extraordinary creations are they look mad in their time because it's 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 not beyond. So you just you can. Uh, well, first of all, you can't imagine what's the unfinished part look like because they don't take you on that part in the tour. Yeah, with the... but uh, but you but you have to wonder the size of that castle because only like ten percent of it was finished. You know what? You know what would this have looked like if he had realized his dream? And yeah. uh, it would be a better tour than it is today. And it's yeah. a great tour today. It really is. It's interesting to have a throne room that never got a throne. One of the things that was really interesting is that the servants' quarters upstairs were quite nice. I mean, that oh, really? he really Not did really. take care of the servants there. Yeah, that was. It's actually you're surprised when you see them. Uh, uh, because they, you know, it's, it's clear that they were, you know, that they were taken care of, and that was a good place. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.